Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film listeners. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. It's a very special episode today because Alyssa Micha is back on the show to talk about lobsters, lights, and of course, spilling the beans. Today we're talking about Robert Eggers' sophomore film and what may be his masterpiece, The Lighthouse. Welcome back to the show, Alyssa. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Of course. This is really special because this one has been in the bag and been on the docket for a long time, ever since this movie came out and came to Ithaca back in October of 2019. You reached out to me and you said, if, I, if you ever wanted to come back on, you wanted to do this movie. And this has been a heavily requested episode for us because it's kind of right in our wheelhouse um, of... Uh, you know, A24 being super weird, uh, a more like modern indie auteur. There's a lot to get into, but I got to ask, I, we always start by talking about our first experiences. Tell me about that first time that you saw this movie. We're talking about The Lighthouse, obviously. Yeah. So my husband and I went to Ithaca to Cinemopolis, great theater. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, I had kind of an expectation of of what it was going to be built up in my head. And then it quickly, you know, changed, changed for me. You know, it, it, it was everything that I wanted. And then so much more than that, too. Um, I felt like, you know, I was so surprised by the ending and by just the cinematography, you know, I, up to that point, there was, there was a trailer, but it wasn't like a really revealing trailer. It was, it was, you know, very kind of obscure and mysterious. Um, and I had there at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of articles about like how they filmed it, um, about the story, anything like that. So going into it, I was kind of going into it blind. I was just like, I'm so ready for this. And then it, you know, exceeded all of my expectations, which I think is why, like, almost immediately after I sent you a message and I was like, Josh, I'm like, we got to talk about this. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I, I'm, I'm sad it took this long, but, like, I, I think this is one that is perfect that just fits right in with everything that I've been talking about for the last few years of, like, how many times, like, can you go back to a movie and it's important to to revisit movies and we talked about that the last time you were here but uh, I also saw this for the first time at Cinemopolis my friend uh, Tyler Harner who was a guest on here uh, went to go see it um, when I was at Ithaca and it was there was so much buzz around it in the um, you know in the film community up there at Ithaca because again it and we're gonna dip into you know the typical film student stereotypes in here but you kind of have to for this because it's just it's candy for us this movie um, and I I'm this I was the same way I knew very little about it I had seen the witch I think the summer before um, in 2018 and was blown away by it I really loved that movie um, and I was just I was excited. I knew, okay, just you get you got Pattinson and Defoe at a, in a lighthouse. I'm I'm signed up, and you know you had that cool teaser photo, which is currently your um, background on Zoom, uh, and I was just I was in. I was ready for it, and I 
was ready for like some cool folklore stuff, some awesome dialects and just craziness. And I got that and I got it like in an, like a, a totally overwhelming, immersive way. I saw it at, in Cinemopolis. It was a great theater experience because everyone was locked in. Everyone was just so into what was happening. And ever since then, it's honestly been the more I've revisited two times in the past year. And it's be- slowly becoming one of my favorites of the last like five or six years. And it's, it's so, it's such a banger of a movie, honestly. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's fun. It's so strange. And there's so much to unpack about it. And that, I think that for me is what makes it so fun. Yeah, so um, like I said, my husband and I watched it again last night um, just as kind of like a refresher so I could take a bunch of notes. And the whole time I was thinking, I'm like, man, I'm so glad that the first time I saw this was on a big screen and not Mm -hmm. on my home television. You know, it's fine. Mm -hmm. It's great to watch it on Blu-ray. It still looks amazing. But I'm really happy that I got to see it on a large screen because it is such eye candy. Like, it's so visually pleasing just mm-hmm. every shot I don't think there's a shot in the movie that isn't just stunning absolutely and also like the sound to get that in the theater of like the you know the fog or the blah like as that's o- kind of overlaying in the entire movie you start to kind of feel what Pattinson is feeling like as the movie's going on and that's really starting to get to you because it really it echoes in the theater of how loud it is it's such a technically immersive movie and obviously we'll just we'll delve into the story stuff in just a second I wanted to do some quick specs on the movie so this is obviously The Lighthouse this is the sophomore film uh, from David Eggers it was released in 2019 uh, a whole four or five years after um, The Witch which is uh Pretty crazy, pretty crazy break. Um, I was actually, I was reading a couple articles earlier, and um, Eggers was talking about how, like, this was actually in the works before The Witch, um, and they just weren't able to do it, and they didn't have the right script. They didn't have the script finished, and they didn't have the, you know, the cast and everything lined up. Um, And, but, you know, so apparently this one has been in the works for a long time. And it kind of blows my mind that this is like his second feature yeah. film. I'm like, what? <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> I know. And such a way to top yeah, to top himself after The Witch, because there's a lot of good comparisons between the two, but they're also they work so well on their own and it's cool to see the progression sure. you know, of, of the art. And his next movie is going to be coming out later this year. It's called The Northmen. It's all about Vikings uh, yeah. in Belfast. I'm so excited. Um, this movie premiered at the um, 72nd um, Cannes Film Festival in 2019 and then was distributed by um, A24 for an October release. It was nominated in terms of the Oscars. The most prominent one that it got was um, Cinematography. No performance nomination for Defoe. We'll talk about that a little bit later. That is just a a catastrophe. Um, And it's kind of gotten this um, reputation. It's kind of right out of the gate as being, you know, one of the more modern indie masterpieces. I think there's so many themes about there's mythology, there's stuff about, you know, alcoholism, there's stuff about the relationship between the two men, what's real, what's not, about identity. There's just so much to talk about. And I, I think that one thing I wanted to ask you is that, I, and I say this in the beginning, that I also acknowledge that this movie is not for everybody. This is a very, this is very niche in a, in a very specific way. What do you think might turn someone off about this? Is it because it's super weird or that it's kind of, there's too much going on or there's not enough going on? Like, what do you think, 
Like, why we love it for various specific reasons, but it's very. I, I, why do you think it's not everyone's cup of tea? Um, I think immediately the black and white is going to turn off a certain percentage of people. Um, you know, watching films in black and white is not all that common anymore. And I think especially for like a younger audience, it's not necessarily going to be an appeal. I think for people who are really interested in cinema or have studied cinema and cinematic history, black and white is almost, it's comforting in a way to, you know, revisit that look. Um, Although, you know, and we'll talk about the cinematography later being that, you know, it is black and white, but it still has like it's it's very different than other black and white films in its visual style. Um, second, I think a real kind of lack of plot that you can yeah. <laughs> that you can like grab onto. I wouldn't consider this a plot heavy film at all. It's more yeah. of uh, I would say like a character study than it is a, you know, story. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, not, not, I mean, I guess kind of a spoiler, but there's not really a, a resolved ending. There is no, <laughs> there is mm-hmm. no wrap up. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. for, for sure. And I think that, it, and A24 has kind of had this reputation and obviously we'll bring them up a bunch during this. I'm a, just a huge fan of theirs, but that it this movie fits directly in their real wheelhouse. I think this is kind of one of their like, Mount Rushmore movies because of like Eggers has said this is a movie that it it more deals with questions than it does answers and I think that's kind of why there's so much subtext in this movie and so much to kind of you know discover and figure out um I I also think that going off of what you said about the black and white not only you know is it not in color but it's also in uh, a 1 by 19 aspect ratio um and it makes it look like an old sailor's photograph um from i, I believe this is set in the um mid 1800s um and they wa- they really wanted to go for that and i and i really love that but it also one thing i was watching about uh, watching for last night um was that if you, obviously like we can get wrapped up in everything else but i was like does the modern movie goer go in expecting Defoe and Pattinson and then is it too do they stick out too much and as I was watching it I was like in any other one else's hands you could easily see this as like okay this is a sailor movie but I'm distracted by the fact that it's Robert Pattinson but they meld so well into the actual story and the narrative because they trust what Eggers is doing and they because Eggers has full faith in the audience in this in this uh in this film but it's not like oh okay I'm just watching Pattinson in this scene I'm totally taken out of it or I, I'm just seeing Defoe in a beard like it's it's really not that they really take on these personas or almost lack of persona and just disappear from themselves which is I find really exciting yeah I think yeah I mean obviously Robert Pattinson got his start doing you know like the Twilight thing but I think mm-hmm. Since then, he has really veered off of (laughs) that kind of trajectory of like, you know, pop films. Um, And I think he's done a lot to really break break that stereotype of, Mm -hmm. of, you know, that type of character, which I think is great. He's an amazing actor. Um, Oh, absolutely. So I think, you know, and then Willem Dafoe is is Willem Dafoe. And (laughs) in my opinion, can do no wrong. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but for me, this is kind of like 
the top. I I think this is one of his, if not the best role I've ever seen him in. Uh, he just kind of like, it, it's almost like, you know, in, in every film that Willem Dafoe is in, you're kind of aware, like, oh, it's Willem Dafoe. Like, you know, you you have that in the back of your head. But this, he kind of takes on this like whole other person. Like his face is different. His body is different. Um, you know, it's so not characteristic of even his other roles. And and I think that that is a real testament to his acting abilities. Absolutely. And they hide their, like, their public personas, like, really well in this movie. Like, Defoe obviously has the crazy facial hair. And if you look at him, it's almost hard to be like, that's Willem Defoe. If you look at Pattinson, like, in the famous picture, you can tell. But then, like, when he's acting, the mustache is just enough to hide where it's like, okay, that... I guess that is Robert Pattinson. Really, the only thing that really sticks out is are his eyes, the way that they kind of pierce through the screen, and you can tell it's like okay, you get you're getting the kind of Pattinson look. But I definitely agree. I love this switch for him in the past like five or six years because he needed something like a complete 180, like Good Time, to just be like, no, I'm here for a different reason, and that movie's incredible. And you needed something to just be like, we're gonna make him play the worst human being, the like one of the most vile main protagonist that I've seen in a movie in, in a while to make you be like, okay, Pattinson, Pattinson has other things in store for us. And, you know, here, this is just the mad acting Olympics for the two of them. They get to go absolutely crazy for an hour and 50 minutes. And it, it's also, it's, it's not a boring movie. Like you, I've never get tired. Like I, last night I was like, oh, this scene's next. Oh, it's this scene. Okay. It's this scene. It's this scene. It just like rolls into itself like really well because each scene feels fresh and is directed in a different way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's a wild ride and you kind of get to <laughs> live vicariously through their acting because you get so immersed into it. You get so sucked in. And I think a lot of that does have to do with the sound design and, you know, the crazy, weird dialogue, which, you know, when you think back on it, it's like the percentage of the film that actually has dialogue is very small. Mm-hmm. But the dialogue is so engrossing. They're like, you know, long periods where nothing is said and then long periods of this kind of expository dialogue that just kind of goes on and on and it's almost nonsense, you know, mm-hmm. but you pick up here and there. Like it's such it's such an interesting kind of physical experience watching this film. Yeah, there is a puzzle-like quality to it because if even if the dialogue is expository, it's so based in colloquialisms that you're just like, I still have to f- weave through this maze to figure out where we're going. And that's exciting. To, the, to me, I find that extremely exciting. There's stuff to pick up on each time. And uh, um, two quick general things I wanted to talk about um, first before. I wanted to say this is kind of become... Well, first I want to talk about 2019. Um, I think just an incredible movie year. Um, obviously, like really the last great one that we had before <laughs> everything went out. Um, and I wanted to just read a, a list of some of the popular movies um, that came out that year. So obviously, in, in one year, in one year, we got The Lighthouse, Parasite, Little Women, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, Jojo Rabbit uh, and um, uh, Marriage Story and Toy Story 4. And there's just so much like like personal, like um, really hard hitting movies. And 
I, I just, I, I loved that. It was so, it was almost overwhelming the amount of good movies that came out um, during that year. I mean, and, and Joker, if you like that, I don't. But um, uh, The Irishman also, um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Pain and Glory, Uncut Gems. Like, it was just like an assault of good cinema. And I, I'm curious, like, w- did you have a specific, were you going to the movies more frequently that year? Were you kind of overwhelmed by the amount of good content that was coming out that year? Like, what was your um, perception of movies that year? I mean, it's obviously not that long ago, but it feels like <laughs> it was like eight years ago. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. As much as I love movies, I don't go to the theater as often as I would like to. Um, mm-hmm. Partly because, you know, it is somewhat expensive right, <laughs> endeavor yes. to go. Um, but also because, you know, I don't, there are not a lot of movies that I feel like are worth seeing on the big screen anymore. Uh-huh. Um, this was definitely on my list. Like pretty much anything from a 24, I'm like down to go see at the theater yeah. because, you know, uh-huh. not only is it going to be, you know, entertaining and fulfilling, Um, but also, you know, you're going to be in for like a visual treat. Like I've never, I've not seen a film from a 24 that wasn't worth seeing on a big screen. Um, so that, that kind of clinches it for me. If they're, if, if they're putting it out that I'm like, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Um, but other than that, I'm trying to think of what else I saw in the theater in 2019, which feels like forever ago. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, when did Midsummer come out? Oh, that was also a okay. So I saw yeah. Midsummer, um, and I want to say Us, maybe Us also. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I am having a really hard time remembering what no, was yeah. actually in 2019. <laughs> yeah. I think those are the other two films that I saw in the theater that year. Mm-hmm. Those are great movie experiences. Uh, I love both of those so much. Um, and it's, it's kind of, this kind of bleeds into what I was about also going to say that like, this is kind of an, this is inadvertently taking on like, uh, kind of a status of like an ultimate quarantine movie because it's just two people stuck on an Island and you know, the elements of the outdoors are actively working against them and it, you know, it drives them crazy. And that in and of itself is something that I feel like we can all relate to having gone through, you know, the entirety of last year uh, inside and you know and because of that you know our entire world changed and I you know I, I miss having movie years like 2019 and like having just this constant um, each week of something new and exciting coming out or just being able to go back to the theaters you know as much as I as much as I could um, and so but watching this now like I was watching it in my room with all the lights off and just one candle lit in the corner and it was raining outside, so it was it was perfect. And so it was still I you can meld the experience to um to make it work. And I think that because of that, it's like it really strikes of like, oh yeah, I feel completely isolated and cut off from the world. And in this one instance, it's perfect and it works. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, for anyone who's going to watch this film, wait until it's dark. Mm-hmm. And watch it in the darkest room that you possibly can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For sure. <Yeah. laughs> I think that that makes a big difference um, because the film is, there is so much to be seen, but it's also like, it's a very 
there's a lot of darkness in the film too, visually. And so I think, you know, it just, it heightens all of that contrasty goodness. So if you Mm -hmm. can watch it on DVD, watch it in the dark. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's get into it. Let's just delve right (laughs) in. We have so much to talk about. Let's go to the critical breakdown. Uh, for this, I, I think it just makes most sense speak to just blend the two together. I think we're going to be talking about what we like, what we don't like, and the analysis because they're so rooted in one another. Um, I, I said at the top what I, I am really, sh- what I was really struck by this time around watching it um, was again how everything blended well together. Like nothing, like nothing took me out of the experience of like, oh, okay, well, again, like I see Pattinson, and I'm like, oh, this just feels like he's doing like a a big acting thing because he wants to try and get some recognition. It's like, no, he's actually very important to the story. And I don't think that, I think you need this pairing of like someone who, as Defoe says, pretty as a picture, you know? Uh, and, uh, and Defoe is this old kind of w- uh, worn down, but also strong figure. Cause like, I, you can't break Willem Dafoe. Like you just can't do it, right? You know. So I think the pairing was really great. Um, but was there anything on this viewing that stuck out to you more? Like if it was either good or bad. But do you take something away new from this movie each time? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that especially towards the later part of the movie, there's so much happening and it's so quick. So the pacing changes really fast. Um, and I think when I saw it in the theater, I was just partly stunned by the visuals, trying to keep track of, you know, the the timing, like how long have they been there? What's going on? What, how are they interacting with each other? I feel like there was so much kind of like rapid fire information happening that I feel like I missed a lot the first time I watched it. And then the second time I was like, oh, there's like a whole other thing like I realized you know about like the backstory for Robert Pattinson's character that I feel like I totally missed the first time I saw it you know I think Mm -hmm. I got it on some level but didn't really pick up on all of the things Um, so I think it's definitely worth watching more than one time because I I do think it's one of those films that you can keep watching it and you're not only going to be entertained but you're going to find new things every time little easter eggs that are hiding in there um yeah. And and I'll I'm going to say right up front there isn't anything that I dislike about this film. <laughs> yeah, no. I I I totally agree. I think it's pretty pretty perfect. Um and I I I I I love that you said that because I think that one thing that I really took away this time is that I did more research like I was reading a couple articles and doing some Greek um mythology research. Um that my analysis of this movie kind of changes every time. Like there's more, uh, there's so much more going on. Like as opposed to when, if you watch a movie, you, you notice like, okay, this is a lot. I'm going to focus on this one thing. And then the second time you're like, okay, I saw this though. But here it's like, when the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, I think it's this. And I feel like that's it. And everything relates to this one through line. And then the second time I was like, oh wait, but then but there's also this. And then this time I was like, oh, there's like eight different things going on. And they all somehow relate to each other, but also don't relate to each other. Um and I, I said up at the top there's a lot about Greek mythology in this movie. There's a lot about um you know, uh 
there's a whole thing about the sexuality between the two men. I want to save that for a little bit later. Um, I but I wanted to talk about the scenery first. Um, just the you get a really good sense of place throughout this entire movie, right from the get go when there's the establishing shots of the island, those still shots of them on the boat going up, and then when they arrive and you get that really great shot of the boat leaving in the fog. In the theater, I was like, okay, something's going to happen. Like, I was just so <laughs> excited. It's like just one of my favorite shots in a movie for the past like few years. It's such a great feeling of isolation and loneliness almost and it like it hits you right kind of in the pit of your stomach and the island is also not that big so when they go like across the way to where the lifeboat is you can tell it's kind of right outside the front door of the house and then the house is so small and you get those great shots of just going up the stairs and the way the lighthouse works and you always know where everyone is at the exact moment in time it's amazing it's amazing that they can do that yeah, I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling to me the way that they shot it. I mean, they did shoot, they didn't shoot on an island. It was just like a little kind of, I don't know, archipelago, I guess you would call right. it, um, mm-hmm. uh, of land where they actually built these sets. They're, they're, it's not an existing lighthouse as hard, I mean, as impossible as it is to believe because it looks so old and weathered and like it's been there for a hundred plus years, you know? Um, but they built all of this on this kind of like little peninsula on off of Nova Scotia, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like to be able to shoot all of that and make it feel like an Island without showing anything else in the background, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm yeah. like, how, how did they do this? It's so good. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. The fact yeah, the fact that they built a lighthouse is just like you see this movie and you're like Eggers is a madman. And they filmed this all in like 34 days. I was like, "How? That must have been because by all accounts it was a pretty troubling shoot obviously because of how the weather like acted out there. Um but that also seems to have worked in their favor because the shots of when the ocean is like crashing against the island and the waves are so big like that's honestly terrifying. Like seeing all of that like just the the force of nature and that bleeding in with the Greek mythology stuff of like, you know, Poseidon and Triton is just like, it gives you the chills. Like, and it's, I don't know. I just think it works like so well together with just the scenery and everything around them was, it seems like it worked in their favor. Uh, yeah. I mean, for sure. I, the weather is kind of like its own character in this film and it has its own personality and it's, you know, it's, it's so, I'm sure it was a nightmare to shoot. Like, I'm sure, like, mm-hmm. to me, I'm like, I hate being cold. I hate being out in the rain. I'm like, I can't even imagine. But I have to think that it helped them get into character, that it helped them kind of really embody these two people. Um, you know, I, I think putting them into these, like, kind of distressing conditions has got to, like, make some of, has to have some effect on their their performance, I would think. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, they have to they have to be, or more so Pattinson, has to be irritated throughout a vast majority of this movie. Um, and not even just like, even before he, get, he goes crazy, before he gets mad, he just has to be like annoyed and he has to be frustrated. So that like really adds to it. And that also adds some really great moments uh, of humor, obviously, like having... Defoe like fart several times throughout the opening 30 minutes is fantastic like and it and you could look at that and someone could say that like 
that's kind of unnecessary or pretentious or just annoying. I think it's fucking hilarious. I think it's probably because I'm a child at heart and I think that that's funny. Um, but just uh, just that idea on paper is like gold. Like Willem Dafoe farts several times throughout the movie and it's going to annoy Robert Pattinson. How could you not be in? That's just amazing. <laughs> right. So I actually there was a really great article um, from Esquire where they interviewed Robert Eggers and they asked him about that. And his response was. Uh, certainly, if you've got two guys living in close quarters, scatological humor is going to be a part of it. So the farts were in the script from the very beginning, and Defoe's first fart in the screenplay is described as a deliberate display of power, which it is, but it's also just a fart joke. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I read something where he was like, he referenced The Odd Couple. And for some reason, I never really thought about this as kind of a, it's, as a roommate movie. Because I think you frame it in this a specific time period with a specific dialect on this island. And, you know, the way that they frame it. You don't really think, like, it literally is just, it's The Odd Couple. And that's really amazing to see that they were able to transfer that over. Um, well, I one, mean, one th- and, and Eggers wrote this with his brother, so you have right. to imagine that if he has a brother that's fairly close in age, like, you know, some yeah. of this has got to come from personal experience. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And it, again, it's just like, once when def- uh, when Pattinson explodes and he's just like, you goddamn farts, it's just fantastic. <laughs> um, the one thing I was noticing, again, it kind of hit me more in the, in the research that uh, I didn't realize, like, in there, uh, it was initially supposed to be like an adaptation of Poe's poem, The Lighthouse. Um, and they found that to be much more difficult, so they kind of broke away from it. Um, and when I was reading that, they said they took out a lot of the Poe elements. But there is a, still a lot of Poe in this movie. And I'm such a big fan of Poe. You can see, like, just obviously, like, the ambiguous past of the characters, setting two people in an isolated location, the um, kind of degradation of man through their like past sins I think is very prominent and is totally Poe like especially in like obviously the Raven and the Telltale Heart um, and um, the Murders in Rue Morgue but I think that you know even though it's not deliberate you can very clearly see that this is kind of this is this is kind of a Poe poem. It is a mythological story, and it's also kind of a Hitchcock movie. And I really love that there's those several different elements. Like all three of those are vastly different stories from one another, told in very, very, very different ways. You know, one is much more suspenseful, one is more epic, and one is more kind of morally terrifying and you wouldn't necessarily think that all of those can mesh up but they managed to blend them well together in this almost lasagna-like layer of a story <laughs> and you're right there really isn't a plot of this movie it's really but it's also not observational you can tell that something's coming it's really playing with your expectations more than your idea of a narrative yeah absolutely i 100 percent agree <laughs> uh, I want let's talk about the cinematography and I kind of just want to let you cook because I know you're much more photo- of a photography head than me um, but yeah I mean this is I, I noticed a lot of the tracking shots in this everything is so fluid they um, you know it's, it's all on a tripod or a dolly and they managed to get the camera in the space and it that is an intoxicating thing about this really is the way that it looks and they do it in a way that again doesn't make the story boring so 
please tell me why you love the cinematography of this. <laughs> ah, okay. I mean, I could spend the whole time just talking about this. Take as much time but, as you want. <laughs> but, we, well, but we won't. Um, you know, I think, again, if you get to watch this on like DVD or Blu-ray and you get to watch the special features, I highly recommend it because it is such a really cool look at exactly all the different components of making this film look the way that it looks. And it was a very deliberate choice on their part. Um, you know, using older cameras, um, a film stock that was developed in, you know, 1959 by Kodak. Um, it's the film stock itself is, only an ASA of 80, which if you know anything about shooting film, that is a very slow film. And that means you have to have a ton of light, like a whole bunch of light, like not <laughs> like the sun isn't going to cut it. You need more than that. Um, and then, you know, they use like these vintage lenses um, and they actually had a custom filter made um, so that it would block, basically, it makes the film sensitive to ultraviolet, blue, and green light and not sensitive to red, which is why you get these kind of like really dark, dark, contrasty um like tones. And then like in the skin tones, like it shows every little imperfection in the skin, broken blood vessels in the eyes, like all of those show up as black, um, which just adds to the kind of like grittiness, the the worn and weathered feeling to the whole film. Um, you know, it's on top of all the technical stuff that I could just geek out about for a really <laughs> long time. It's really awesome to see people still shooting on film and mm -hmm. finding new ways to adapt old lenses to cameras and, you know, like all of these things that like, it gives me hope that film is not dead as someone who still enjoys shooting on film. Um, and mm -hmm. is finding it increasingly more difficult to get film, to get it processed, you know, all of that. Yeah. So, Part of me is just like, oh, this is like this is like a love letter to film for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, you've got this like kind of really tight aspect ratio, which I've got to imagine as a cinematographer. I mean, it's it's even more compressed than like a four by three, which is what we would typically think of for like, you know, 16 millimeter film or whatever. Um and it's so tight. Like, I can't imagine trying to think about your framing in such small confines. But the cinemat cinematographer basically was talking about how, like, they wanted it to feel really claustrophobic and they wanted to kind of keep everything super condensed together. Um, and I have to imagine that actually trying to accomplish that was probably really, really difficult, um, especially when you've got such, like, stunning things to look at like everything yes. just looks so cool <laughs> yes absolutely and yeah I, I never really thought about how that also must have been it's probably good in that sense that they were able to build their own sets because then they realized okay we're working in this level of space and we have to be able to get them as close to each other as possible and Defoe and Pattinson uh, other than when they're outside are pretty much like less than like three feet apart from each other the entire time like when they're in the kitchen when they're in their bedroom they are like just right at the edge of the frame at all times and that in and of itself just must drive you crazy because both of these guys they're like pretty big you know they're like taller and like Pattinson especially is very lanky so like that 
that just adds another level of challenge. But obviously the confidence in this movie is is almost as palpable. And it's interesting you said about the tones because I was noticing like, yeah, it does seem like it was shot with much more cooler tones because the whole thing feels a little flat in like the best way possible. Like it's not as stark of a contrast as something like... Um, like a, a, a the Elephant Man or something like like a Racerhead, some early David Lynch stuff. Like that is like extremely like you know high high highs and low lows. This is very much like kind of in the middle. Um, while there obviously is still contrast, but it does seem like it's kind of lit by a candle, and they turn they took all of the um, warm tones out, and it makes it feel again like an old time photograph. Um, and I love that. It's so fun to look at. Like it's not. Um, it's not bland, and but you could also feel like these guys are getting dirty and gross, and um, like obviously, especially when Defoe is getting literal dirt thrown on him, like it just it just looks disgusting. But uh, I think they yeah they made the right choice. Like this would have been so different if it was in widescreen. Can you even imagine that? No, I feel like yeah. I, I feel like I would hate it. Maybe I don't know. I'm sure I would still love it, but yeah, I. It definitely has like a certain look to it, especially if I mean, for people who do like photography, if you've ever shot in like medium format, um, which is much more of like a square aspect ratio, um, it does have that feeling of like old photographs and the reasoning behind their um their choice to filter the black and white film was actually to make it emulate um, uh, orthochromatic film stock, which was popular in the 1900s. So it has like this kind of look to it. It's early film stock. So it has like a really old feeling to it, um, which I think is just, it's so cool. Um, You know, and then the, these, they use these like really amazing, um, lenses the baltar lenses from like the 1930s and 40s they're like portrait lenses so the the amount of detail that you get to see is just stunning you know especially like the scene where he's looking through the shingles like when he's replacing the shingles on the roof and he's looking through and you can see like every pore on his face and every little Mm -hmm. hair and everything and it's so it's just like visual candy Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting. Also, you bring up mid. We you mentioned Midsummer earlier. That movie was also filmed in a, I think, a full screen aspect ratio. But that was a movie when I saw it. I actually didn't notice that until like halfway through, and when I realized, oh, that I saw that in theaters too, and I was like, oh, the curtains are closing off the full screen. It's not in widescreen. Oh, but this was like this was a selling point of this movie that this is what this movie is going to look like and this is how we're going to kind of set it apart. And there's been a lot of indie movies especially from A24 that have experimented with the um kind of boxy um aspect ratio. A Ghost Story is famous for that. Um Midsummer as I mentioned and uh I think The Witch was too if if I recall, but this one they really want you to feel closed in. Um, and especially it's great if you see it, obviously if we saw it in theaters, you were like, you I couldn't move. I felt like I couldn't move out of my seat. You know, you just were kind of sucked in, uh, and they just made it a perfect technical choice on, on their part. I, I love the way this movie looks. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if it was in the, um, in the special features or if I read it in an article, but they would, I think that was a choice that they made like really, really early on. Like that was a very early decision. Like I think Eggers, that was like one of his visions of the film was this very tight aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. 
and I love the way that e- there's so much, be- and you mentioned earlier that there's, uh, you know, the dialogue is, while can be quite extensive in certain seasons, is doesn't fill up the entire movie. So they have to really work a lot with visual imagery, with imagery and visual storytelling. Um, and so because of that, you get a lot of great, um, you know, visual references to things like Greek mythology and seeing, uh, you know, there's the one scene where Defoe grabs Pattinson and he looks at him with the light, which is the, the, uh, the, uh, a replica of a, of a painting, which name, uh, whose name escapes me. Uh, it's um, called hypnosis. I made a note of it because I had looked it up prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called hypnosis by Sasha Schneider. And that was done in 1904. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you get, then you also get Defoe at the top of the lighthouse when he's kind of putting his arms out in front of the light with Pattinson down below. There's a lot of great highs and lows. You get the great shot of in the lighthouse, like in the middle of the spiral staircase as it like kind of zooms in when you hear Defoe going, what you spill your beans for? Like it's just, <laughs> there's so much great creepy stuff in this movie. I love it. Um. Yeah, and then I think, and, and I made a note of this, but... I can't find it in my notes. Um, You know, the camera movement was very deliberate in that they wanted the camera to be um, like active. It's it it does move around, um, but it doesn't really feel contemporary. Like it doesn't feel like films of today. You know, all the, Mm -hmm. the movement is very calculated and controlled, but it's also not like super apparent camera movement like sometimes you know if you're thinking about like like a Wes Anderson film where the movement is very controlled and you know there's like point a point b point c but I feel like in like a Wes Anderson film it's drawing your attention to it and I feel like in this film it's more like oh if I were to turn my head and look in the other direction that's what I would see and it feels much more natural it doesn't feel like it's it's bringing awareness to the camera itself yeah it does have it does they did kind of adopt this fly on the wall style without drifting into documentary which i think is where that style is more so associated with um they but you do make a it's good that you mentioned like wes anderson because yeah wes anderson is very much okay the camera's gonna start here and it's gonna go here and i love wes anderson don't get me wrong but it's very much like yeah a to b to c to d whereas here They'll do certain camera movements for like that seems so complicated and so uh, like integral for like an insert shot. Like there's that great shot of the camera that goes all the way up the side of the lighthouse just to show the the windmill at the top and just to show that the direction has changed. Yeah. Like any other director, I think would have just been like, okay, let's try and get like a the like get up at the top or like uh, do a green screen thing where it's like right next to the windmill as it as it changes but uh they they literally it goes all the way up the side right up to the top and i I, every time i see that shot i always forget that that's what that's for that's what the purpose of it is is to show the direction of the wind because like last night i was watching i was like oh it's going up oh what's happening oh where's it going and then it's just like oh okay because even then it like it gets your nerves up like it is there's so many choices and because of how smooth everything looks and it's it's it feels professional it doesn't feel low budget it doesn't like they didn't they obviously didn't go like a handheld cam route or they didn't go everything on a tripod but there's some great transitions like especially when um defoe is chasing after pattinson with the axe like back in the house there's those great like side dolly tracking shots and then it goes into the house and they're still kind of on the dolly where they like 
do these quick pans and quick tilts and it's it all melds it all meshes well together in the edit yeah um one of my favorite camera movements is in the one of the very first scenes um where uh, robert pattinson's character is kind of exploring the house you know he comes in he's he's looking around he tries to break into the desk you know and then he goes upstairs and the camera starts uh, at the top of the stairs looking down at him and it's kind of this silhouetted beautiful amazing shot and he comes up the stairs and it turns with him but it's mm-hmm. like I don't even know how they fit all of that in there yeah. like I don't know and then he you know he bumps his head and walks in and is like poking around his bed area and you don't even realize that Willem Dafoe's character is already in that room he's just hidden yeah. by this like chimney that's there you know and then then he sees a little butt poke out and he farts and <laughs> <laughs> yeah he puts the bedpan like underneath yeah. his head <laughs> And it's just, I'm like, that's, it's so genius. I'm like, how do you film something like that in such a tight space? And I, yeah, I don't know. I, that's one of my favorite shots in the whole thing. I totally agree. Um, one thing I want to mention, I, I said at the top, there's a lot of, uh, I think this is a great, obviously a great companion piece to The Witch because um, obviously it's the same director. But I, I love the stuff that carries over. The thing that I really love about The Witch is I love, like, that style of storytelling in folklore and that it's way more scary than any modern ghost story that you're going to see. And it is like rooted in supernatural stuff and it, you don't really know where it's going, but it's so, it sucks you in because you're just like, I have to see where this is going to end. And the lighthouse is somewhat of a folklore, but it's also much more of a legend because I should have I should have also said this up top that this is somewhat based on a true story of two um, lighthouse keepers, both named Thomas in Wales, I believe, um, during who were keeping uh, keeping up with the lighthouse. And during a storm, one of them, uh, one of the men named Thomas uh, died and the other one began to go mad because he wasn't uh they didn't come and check on him until like a week after and there was apparently an instant where that he kept the body outside during the storm and because of the way the storm was the arm was moving so he thought the body was like beckoning to him and it caused him to go mad and that knowing that while seeing this movie makes it so much more so much scarier because again it's rooted in this legend and there's already another legend in the movie about like what the light is and how this other guy went mad because of wanting to see what was inside the light and maybe that's just me but I love storytelling like that because you know there's so much to un- t- so much to discover and because of that they do a lot of really great like he leaves a lot of breadcrumbs along the way like just in that scene that you're talking about when he, when Pattinson goes into the bed and he takes out the little mermaid, um, like thing from, from inside the bed, you're like, Oh, okay. I got to pay attention to that. How's that going to come back? And it does come back in like very deliberate, like a couple different ways. It's so fascinating. And I, I love like legends and folklore because it's like, these are stories that are most likely like not true, but they're told they're passed down and told in certain ways that you're just like, I'm still freaked out by them. I love that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, not that they're not necessarily sailors, but kind of, you know, the same same type of people as sailors, you know, and they there is a lot of mythology and superstition built into that culture, you know, and I think they did a really cool job of of 
placing those elements into the film without like overtly really saying what they are. It's kind of like they talk about them as if it's common knowledge, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody already knows that it's bad luck to kill a seabird, right? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Oh my God. The seagulls. Oh, that I want to, we'll get to that in just a second, but to continue along the, the idea of like, the way that this movie ramps up, like continues to build suspense and tension is very Hitchcockian because again, like it starts off like the weather is changing and it's getting, you know, it's getting more violent outside and you already get the sense like immediately right off the bat that Pattinson is not a good guy. And I like that this movie doesn't ask us. It's not really concerned of whether these characters are morally right and wrong. I don't really think it's concerned with right and wrong. It's just like, these are characters in this situation. This is how they're going to act. And right off the bat with Pattinson with he, you know, he's kind of reserved and he doesn't take the liquor and he, you know, kind of pours it out, but doesn't like the, um, you know, the water is disgusting. So that kind of sets in the alcoholism that obviously just comes later, but he's, he doesn't like Defoe like right off the bat. He's just like, yeah, this guy kind of fucking sucks and he's annoyed by him. And, you know, immediately in the next scene when they're talking about what his duties are, he's already arguing with Defoe. Like they're already on bad terms. So then it's just like perfect grounds for conflict. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, of course you've got, you know, the older guy who's done this a hundred times and, you know, isn't going to take any shit from anybody and it doesn't matter, you know, and then, You know, Robert Pattinson, who this is his first time out doing Mm -hmm. this type of work, but acts like he knows what's up. You know, (laughs) I think it's such an interesting dynamic. And, you know, there were parts of the film, though, where like the uh, watching it again, you know, I had the thought, I'm like, are these the same guy? Like, is this somehow, are they the same person? (laughs) Especially when you find out later that they're both actually named Thomas. I mean, we've been calling the actors by their names, their actual names, not their characters' names, because that's a whole kind of confusing part of the film is that, you know, we don't even learn either of their names until like 14 minutes in. And then you Mm -hmm. get like, you get, you know, Ephraim Winslow, which turns out to not even be Robert Pattinson's character's name. So it's like, you know, and I don't think we even learn the other character's name until like way late. I don't even know what the timestamp was. I didn't check Mm -hmm. for that one, but it's much later in the film. And then, you know, and then you find out that they're both actually named Thomas. And I'm like, at that point I was like, wait a minute, are these the same person? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is this somehow like he's fighting an older version of himself or this is what he's going to be or like, yeah, which, yeah, it was very interesting. I'm so happy that you brought that up because this has been my running theory ever since I first saw the movie that I took. This was my big takeaway the first time I saw it and I'm going to get to it in just a second, but I want to talk about Defoe. Um, And I, I think this is an unbelievable performance. Uh, I and I've always loved Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe has been in my life for a very long time. I think I, my generation is very much attached to him because of his Green Goblin in Spider-Man, which has obviously become like a, a meme unto itself. But that performance honestly is really good, and was my first introduction to him as being like, this guy is so weird, but I like him. Like he's so fascinating, and this is where he is just at his absolute best. Like he is, he gets to be a leader. 
um, which is not really what you think of when you think of Defoe as like kind of someone who's leading people around other than maybe like inside man. But even then Denzel kind of overtakes him. Uh, but he's so he's he's bossing Pattinson around. He's really getting under his skin. He's being really gross and annoying and he's being able to just coast through this entire thing because obviously he's the old um you know he's the old veteran so he has these certain traditions like he like every time he does the toast he has to do his little poem and Pattinson's just like oh my god come on can we can we not but he is just having so much fun and he gets to be naked in like several shots and like really overpowered uh Pattinson and he gets to unbelievable monologues in this movie the Hark scene like Whenever in the next, I, I I'm just convinced that Defoe's gonna live forever. So whenever he dies, like in the next fifty to hundred years, that's gonna be one of the things that they show at his in his in memoriam reel. That scene is absolutely incredible. It's just it's just him yelling at Pattinson, but he's so like you hold on to every single word that he's saying, and you're and it's so long. Like he goes and goes and goes, but he's giving it with one one hundred percent energy. That again, you're really trying to weave through the clues of that speech and figure out what he's trying to say. No one else can do that like Defoe. No, no. I mean, and his, it's like as soon as he starts speaking, you are drawn to him. Like, you're so fixated on, on, and at least for me, you know, not even so much what he's saying, but the way that his face moves, the way that his body moves, his hand gestures, you know, all of these things. And in this, he's got this kind of really weird coastal, almost English accent. Um, you know, all of these things are happening. And it's like it it's almost hypnotic, which is interesting because then, you know, you have that scene later on where with the lights and yeah. So mm-hmm. He's, he also, so he also has really, yeah, he has really great outbursts. Like, Defoe is the king of these little mini outbursts. And, I mean, he obviously has a lot of time to, to get really big and uh, loud in this movie. But, like, even just in, like, the beginning, I think it's, like, the second time they eat dinner when he hits Pattinson. Like, he almost, like, he kind of immediately feels regret. And he was like, oh, okay, uh, yeah, we'll have some coffee. You know, we'll, we'll get up tomorrow, we'll have some coffee. <laughs> it was just like, but he has, and it's funny that they talk about him as a, as a dog later, because he does have kind of this, like, Rottweiler-like face that he can kind of turn on. Like, when he's just himself, he, like, he has this kind of, you know, nice, like, big smile. And then when he gets mad, he gets, like, almost evil, in a sense. Like, it goes right to this ravenous kind of, like dog face it's 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 incredible his face he's it has one of the best acting faces um and it's because of that that you kind of you're i don't want to say like necessarily connect but you're really able to listen to him early on so and because of that that there's great conflict between them my takeaway the first time i watched this movie and i kind of still believe it even though there's like the fluctuation of the themes I I don't think Defoe is really there. I think this is all in Pattinson's head and think that this has to do with the fact that he killed somebody uh, and the man that he sees later um, is the guy that he killed, even though they say it's like Defoe's former um, wiki. But I, I believe that Defoe is actually not there and this is all in in Pattinson's head or they could be the same and the fact that they're named both named Thomas it you know kind of adds more to that they're the same person and kind of this guilt or like the yeah guilt that is kind of um like pestering in Pattinson's mind because of what he did um but I I 
100% choose to believe that Defoe is not real in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe that's an unpopular opinion, but I I just think that that is a is the avenue that I've gone down. No, I mean, I think that that's that's definitely one of the things that like, you know, when you're watching it, especially if you've seen it more than once and you're still, you know, okay, for anybody who hasn't seen it, I, you know, there are no answers, which is why it's so much fun to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> is that you can kind of theorize and, and even the director hasn't really given any answers. There's no, I mean, there are some theories online, um, mm-hmm. but nothing has actually been kind of nailed down. And Eggers actually said that, you know, like one time he had read like a very succinct um, kind of uh, of explanation of the end of Lost Highway and it like broke his heart like he would rather have it be oh. ambiguous like he didn't want to know what it was really about and so he deliberately has like left this film kind of open ended in and and not really resolved which mm-hmm. I think you know for me I'm like I love it I could see where some people would really hate it though <laughs> yeah it is kind of lynching in that way I just did a short little I'm um, still doing like a little David Lynch binge recently so I did Mulholland Drive again which is just amazing and yeah that's a movie where I I finished that movie and I'm like I have no idea what some of this is about like I have a fairly good idea of like some things but there's obviously aspects of it where it's like, I'm probably never going to understand this. And that to me is just wonderful. Like, I honestly, like, I really like that. I like not having an easy answer like that in terms of film and lost highway is also another, that movie is fucked up. And the way that that movie ends is absolutely bonkers. Um, and yeah, you just kind of leave like as the car's going and you just see the highway moving. You're just like, well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And I kind of really like that. And this movie, yeah, that and even like I'm more confused by reading stuff. Like I'm I'm so less certain of my own beliefs of this movie after reading what other people think about it. And that's kind of fun. Like I, I don't know the chaotic energy of this movie and the uh, then discourse around it is so fascinating to me that it it kind of like you know blows your melon off because there are no easy answers. There aren't any answers. There are only questions. Yeah, I mean and. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Unchian Andalou. Um, yeah, you should. I watched it in your class, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I found a lot of parallels between that film and this film. Um, you know, the kind of surrealist style of filmmaking. These, like, kind of vignettes of things happening, but you lose track of time and place and you know and then especially like the ending the end scene where he's dead or dying on the rocks right being eaten by seagulls I mean that imagery actually looks very similar to the end of Unchian Andalou where the two people in the film are actually kind of dead half buried on the beach mm-hmm. um, and I remember like the first time I saw it I was like wow I'm like that looks really familiar but I can't like quite put my finger on why that looks really familiar Um but I think, you know, of that school of like surrealist filmmaking, I think, you know, it just it's more of like more thought provoking than trying to teach you some kind of lesson or, you know, moral s- story of some sort. Um, and I I like that. I think it's refreshing. I don't think that every film needs to be kind of this like, you know, f- a story arc that ends with a resolution that gives you some kind of lesson or teaches you something like I think this is just we get to see as a viewer this like weird 
moment in time, this weird interaction, these two characters in this really kind of bizarre job situation on this really remote place. Like, I don't know, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of voyeuristic in a way. I mean, and there is a lot of voyeurism in the film itself. And that's like a whole other thing we can talk about. Yeah, uh, I like I like that you said there really isn't uh, like a takeaway or a message because there really isn't. And, you know, I have, you know, over the last five years really built my you know, artistry and interest in filmmaking around allegorical storytelling, but this is not that. And, but I love that. I like when a movie can just be, it's, this is just about ideas. And I, I think a lot about David Lynch because I mean, he's just, I, I adore him and he, because of his honesty, like I don't, I, I hate when people look at something like David Lynch and be like, this is pretentious. Cause I, I don't think it is. I don't think it's fair because I think that saying that, because Lynch is so honest because he'll just be like, yeah, I don't know what this idea is. I just wanted to try it and see if it worked. And maybe it doesn't work, but this movie's not... This movie's a bunch of pieces. It isn't necessarily a bunch of pieces that fit into a whole. They're just here in this one movie because of how it came out. And I think that this movie is, you know, a great example of that because, again, I I still don't know. I want to talk about the mythology because there are more things that jumped out at me this time because when I I walked away, I was like, okay, I I get, like, you know, there's obviously a lot of stuff about Prometheus um, and uh, Poseidon is mentioned and Triton is mentioned. I also noticed there's a, and maybe this is reading too into it, but there's a good visual representation of Sisyphus when Pattinson is dragging the oil drum like up and then has to take it all the way back down because Defoe's like, oh, it'll, you know, save you time if you go <laughs> like and you see the defeat in his face. Um and you know, I, I think it's amazing having the ending of when he falls down the stairs and then it cuts to him outside. You know, it doesn't end with him dead at the bottom of the stairs. Like he somehow, it's just, in, it's almost he somehow its own, ends up outside naked, and you're like, yes, well, how did that happen? I don't know. It's its own kind of uh, <laughs> uh, dis, like uh, it's its own image. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a part of the story, but it's supposed to be this ending of the, like, yeah, okay. So when I was reading about it, it's like Defoe. Um, Pattinson is Prometheus, and then Defoe is um, Proteus, who is um, who is a sea god, and you know Prometheus is obviously known for stealing the fire of the gods, and because of that, Zeus made him chained to a rock, and an eagle pecks out his liver every single day, um, and you know having this ending of the uh, you know the gulls, which are. Uh, Pattinson's common enemy throughout this entire thing um you know that ending is like okay I they they won and they it does play into what Defoe said earlier it is bad luck to kill a seabird um but I was so much more focused the first time I watched this I was so much more focused on the idea that Defoe had killed some or on that on Pattinson had killed somebody because he kind of alludes to it halfway through when he when like and that's why uh Defoe's like why'd you spill your beans for like he lets this big secret out and you know, when he kills that seabird, when he kills that gull in one of the most, like, brutal, like, just deaths. It just goes on forever. He doesn't like, stop. Oh. oh, my God. <laughs> I know. I remember seeing it the first time, and I was just kind of like, holy cow. Like, that went south so fast. 
<laughs> I loved, I had a great audience because, and it wasn't like a filled, it wasn't a packed theater, but it was like obviously like film fans like you and I. So when that happened, it was so fascinating because it, it does come out of nowhere. Like you didn't, ex- you don't really expect him to have like an outburst like that until like the end. But when he does that at first, you're not expecting it. So there were these kind of like nervous laughter. It was like, oh my God, that's crazy. And then as it just keeps going, you can hear people being like, oh, oh, then I, then you just feel bad. Like at the end of it, you just feel like garbage because you're just like, wow, he like annihilated that bird. Like it is. And, and I think it, and it's amazing that they did that because you have to see that this guy is not not only is he violent, but he's going to pay for that. Like doing something like that does not like is not void of repercussion. Like this is gonna come back and bite him, literally. For sure, for sure, karma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I also think that like this leads like when when him and Defoe are fighting later, before Defoe turns into the the mermaid the merman kind of because um, Proteus was a merman also, uh, or Triton was a merman. Sorry, um, and he's fighting him and he turns into the other guy and the other guy is like these really blonde eye eyebrows and a blonde mustache and a very pointed nose. He kind of looks like a seagull. Like he kind of has this look and like super blonde hair. He's really pale. So I was kind of thinking like, because of that, this whole movie is like dealing with, um, you know, Pattinson tried to get away from this previous life of, you know, um, debauchery and obviously sin and that's why at the beginning he tries not to have any liquor and wants to just like do the job and make money and start a new life for himself and Defoe even says like oh you know it's like the stereotypical thing like oh you come out here to you know to uh to save money and go back you got a girl waiting at home for you know a tale as old as time but really he's I feel like he's trying to get away and he's dealing with this I don't want to say like guilt but the uh the secret is kind of killing him. You know, it's really kind of eating away at him. And, uh, and because of that, Defoe is this other force coming at him is always telling him he's not good enough. Like he's rotten. He's, you know, not, uh, not good at his job. He's going to dock his pay, always fighting back against him. And we'll even drop him from the lighthouse when he's painting. And we'll kind of joke with him also. Like it's just this constant force, like beating on. That's kind of why I think he's not there. It's because he's dealing with this, past trauma that he obviously inflicted because murder but that was my first takeaway from it well it's like defoe's character is kind of gaslighting him Mm -hmm. you know it's like he's constantly berating him telling him he's doing it wrong not doing enough like you know has more work to do and then he's always like well why are you so serious what you know what's wrong like all these (laughs) you know and then later is like you know how long have we been here? Do you know where we are? Do you know, like, you know, what day it is? <laughs> like yes. all of this stuff. And it's like, he's not giving him any answers. He's not telling him like, oh, we've been here X amount of time. He's like just asking the questions, you know, like clearly just messing with his head. Yes. And I love the, and I think this comes into like the, uh, how good the editing is because there are significant time jumps. Like, when they're waiting for the boat to come back after, like, that's the end of the four weeks for him, like, that's, like, 30 minutes into the movie, maybe. And you're like, oh, okay, that went by quickly. Like, what? what's next? And there's really great, like, cut, like again, when he drops him from when he's painting and he hits the ground, there's that great blackout. 
Like you hear that sound of his like side hitting the ground. You're just like, ah, and then it cuts to black and you're really not sure like the concept of time. And again, that's kind of how it feeds into being a great quarantine movies. Cause like everything is just kind of happening in this stream of consciousness. And we don't really know it's very Tarkovsky in that way. Um, and you don't really know like what's the beginning, what's the middle, what's the end. Like could have this all happened like out of sequence. I also love when movies can do that, like really operate in this kind of nonsensical way of time, not in the way like a Christopher Nolan movie is, but like, in like like a story like the mirror of Tarkovsky is very much like there's no semblance of time in that film uh and you know you start to kind of think like damn how long have they been on here but the fact that Defoe is constantly like poking the bear and like charging the fire is it just like really fuels everything well you know and and my husband and I were sitting talking kind of coming up with some theories last night (laughs) and like you know we kept saying like okay well you know what if Robert Pattinson is hallucinating but due to some kind of like him ingesting the bad water or you know head injury traumatic head injury I'm like you know what if all of this because I feel like those things happen early enough in the film that you could then say like from those points on things start to change things get different Um, and it's like you know, the him drinking the bad water is pretty early on, but that shortly after that is when he sees he has kind of his like first hallucination where he's out at night and he's looking out onto the ocean and he sees the logs floating and the body floating, which is like, you know, they don't really kind of explain until they not that they explain a whole lot, but mm-hmm. it doesn't come back until much later in the film that kind of vision that he has. And you're just like, Oh, well that's weird. Like, why is he, <laughs> what's he right. seeing? You know? And he sees the mermaid for the first time. And mm-hmm. that's like pretty shortly after he drinks the bad water. And then after he gets dropped from the pulley system thing there, you know, he hits his head and, that's when shit really starts to get weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's like, you know, there's some kind of correlation between these events. And I'm like, is it really just like, maybe he like, you know, has some kind of illness or um, head injury or whatever, but I don't know, just a theory. That's no, that's entirely possible. I mean, there's also like the, you know, kind of the idea of like an alcoholic fever dream. There's uh, these guys are obviously alcoholics and like uh, they whatever that mixture is that they make. That's like the, of the like with the it's like the the paint thinner mixture from the master that they drink. You know, it's like yeah, that's, it's I said so the same gross. thing. I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's like the master. I'm like, they're yeah. just drinking whatever they can get their hands on. Yeah, literally. And it, and it makes them go crazy. Like and that is and after that is when like the big storm happens and that's when Defoe is chasing him back into the house and Winslow goes like really mad and he's like oh yeah I saw your log book your wiki like you know he you killed him he didn't uh he didn't he didn't he didn't go mad and he's like trying to turn the blame on Defoe uh and he can't do it like he just can't like Defoe has so much more power over him that he just turns it and I mean like that in and of itself is just a pretty general theme like in the movie is just like who's in control, what power do we have, like, over, you know, what we do or what we're capable of. Like, there's that great scene in the early on when I think Defoe really kind of asserts himself when he's talking about how the floors were mopped. And Penson's like, oh, I did them twice already, all right? We don't, like, and he's like, and, no, you'll do it. And I'll, if you have to make you scrape up every every nail and clean it with your teeth, you'll do it. Like, he's, like, really getting in his face. And Pattinson can't really say anything. Like, he's doing it for... Like, he has to be there because he's doing a job. He has all the hard work, 
And if he doesn't do it, he's not going to get paid and he's not going to get the life that he wants. So there's already that concept of who is actually in control. And when Pattinson gets into control at the end, when he beats the shit out of Defoe and makes him act like a dog and then buries him, like he, he goes crazy. And he has just like, he's not safe from it either. So I think that that just as a theme is like totally just present. I think that it makes more sense that there's only two people in this movie, really. I mean, like two main characters, right? And that they're gonna like butt heads and they're gonna try and get over one another and who is actually capable of having that type of power. And, you know, Defoe is able to keep it going like throughout the majority of the film. And then when Pattinson has it, it, you know, kills him. Yeah, I mean, and I think we for sure follow Robert Pattinson's character more than Defoe, though. Like, I mean, if we were to look at this film as like whose perspective are we supposed to be looking at or identifying with? And it's definitely Robert Pattinson's character because Mm -hmm. we never really see Willem Defoe's character alone. The only times we see him alone is like through Robert Pattinson's vision, like, you know, when he's kind of spying on him. But we don't follow him to, like, different parts of the island like we do with Pattinson. You know, like, we kind of follow him through his daily routines and what he's doing while Willem Dafoe is, like, off, you know, doing his own thing. Either he's sleeping or writing in his logbook or up with the lantern. You know, it's very, like, we don't get to see it unless it's through, like, a voyeuristic lens, you know. Right. Yeah, exactly. There is a lot of mystery just behind what he's actually doing, which makes it more enticing for the character because there's, you know, because there's so much talk of like, what was, what is the light? What are they actually trying to get? Like a lot of people say, is it like, is it sex? Is it beauty? Is it love? Is it money? Whatever it may be. It is the thing that is like, it is just the sin that ends up killing Pattinson kind of continuing on the idea of Greek mythology. If, if, um, you know, if Defoe is this kind of, um, uh, Proteus figure, there is that great scene when Defoe comes back and is asleep and tries to, and Pattinson tries to take his keys. And, you know, that's kind of a, a little bit more of a direct reference because with Proteus, they, he naps during the day, and the only time that you can actually get him to spill any wisdom is waking him up from his noon noontime nap. Um, and he, like, all, like Pattinson's over him, like, he almost looks like he's gonna kill him, but he's just trying to, like, take his keys, um, and he, there's no way getting around him, like, he's never gonna outsmart, um, Defoe, and that makes him, you know, even more frustrated, and the only time that these two can actually have a moment of, uh, you know, clear, I guess, joy or enjoyment of one another's presence is when they're so intoxicated, and that's when, um, uh, uh, Pattinson kind of lets his guard down and tells him that his name is Thomas and says what his actual identity is when they're just so like just completely shit drunk and then the storm comes and wrecks the um, the the whole house and you know it's I, I, I just I love that <laughs> like that's so interesting to me yeah there is like this weird kind of bonding that happens while they're drinking and I even noticed that in one of the drinking scenes I think it was the the one like right after they miss the ship um, and they figure out that you know like okay we're might be stuck here because of the storm and so they get totally ship faced but like throughout the whole film Willem Dafoe is smoking a pipe and Robert Pattinson is smoking a cigarette. But in that scene, when they're getting drunk, at some point they switch like Mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, Like, so, you know, these two guys that seem to be very 
kind of private. They don't reveal a lot about themselves. They have their kind of separate spaces, even though they're confined, everything is kind of divided. They have their side of the table, they have their side of the bedroom, and they don't generally go from one to the other. And now they're all of a sudden switching things that would be considered, you know, personal belongings. Um, And I think, you know, I think it's just an interesting moment where, you know, you start to see their characters more in common than they are different. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I never, I never noticed that. Yeah. It's right after their, uh, yeah, right there, like telling stories to one another. And even in that scene, it's interesting because, you know, Pattinson kind of tries to get Defoe to let his guard down in that moment because he's like, oh, come on, let me see the light. You know, you do it every day. Like, come on, let me, you've been, you've, uh, I got to learn, you know? And Defoe's like, no, absolutely not. Like, we won't do it. And even in their drunken state, they can't really relax. They start sparring in that, you know, moment. Um, the one well, uh, quickly, it always yeah. goes from like, you know, oh, we're eating dinner. Things are kind of tense. We have some alcohol. We lighten up a little bit. It always goes from like this kind of like exchanging stories to like, oh, fun, joking. And then it quickly turns into like just fighting. <laughs> like <Yes. laughs> It crosses a line every time and it turns into this kind of like brawl, this drunken brawl. Yes. <laughs> Like, especially, you know, there's like the scene where they're dancing with each other. Yes. (laughs) Like it it goes from like kind of raucous, like happy, you know, joyful dancing to like slow dancing. And then they're beating the crap out of each other. (laughs) Yes. That cut to them slow dancing is hysterical to me. Like they're like and Defoe's like singing to him. Oh my god, he's, t- he's like, you're a beauty. Like, it's so cute, but it's so funny. Yeah. And Robert Pattinson, like, he is, like, aggressively, like, doing the jig, you know, and singing this song. Like, that was a moment for me in the theater where I was like, oh my god, like, I've actually never seen him do this as an actor. Um, and he's, like, having fun. Like, he's really enjoying it. You you can you can tell. Um, and And again, like, even when he finally has it with Defoe and he starts you know he's like I've had it you know I've had it with you you know you your goddamn smell and I love I, I also I love Pattinson's accent through this yeah kind of I, this, I like, read that he it was based on like coastal Maine and mm-hmm. like somewhat coastal Maine but also like farmers somewhat inland from there um based on that same book that that woman had written in like 1904 or something mm-hmm. um about you know she she kind of profiled um like farmers and different types of workers and one of them was a lighthouse keeper and she wrote the their stories but in the dialect that they spoke them so it was based on that which i think is really it's it's interesting that they have such different uh, accents from each other because they did have very different backgrounds. But yeah, his his like main accent is just it's awesome, and in that scene yeah. especially, like it really yeah. shines. He, it's like a lot of really tall vowels. Like it's not it's 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 not like Southern New England in like Massachusetts, which is very wide. It's very like he says, God damn. It's like very like a thin, like lip kind of way of pronouncing consonants. It's so fascinating. I love it. Um, and also very different from Edgar's last film, um, the witch, which is all in, in Maryland in the 1600s, which is also just a completely different dialect. Um, and it's, yeah, I love Defoe's, uh, yeah, kind of, begrudged old sailor kind of yeah you know you'll do it you know it's like that's kind of the stereotype almost and then defoe brings in this something that we have like really not heard before um and yeah it's 
it, he's having an absolute blast. So when he is just like screaming at, at Defoe, he's really trying. That's kind of the switch, I think, is when he does almost have some form of power, you know, over him. And Defoe like tries to get it back. But in the very next scene, that's when Pattinson is he gets the book and then he gets the axe and he ends up killing him, um, which I did not see coming. First time I saw the movie, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, it was just, I was expecting some form of, I guess, like a revelation that was still yeah. going to make the movie even more confusing. But doing that, it was just like, oh, it makes it, it makes it feel like he is actually a person. Um, I, one of the, uh, one of the analysis that I hadn't really thought of, and I, I don't really subscribe to because this is not what I've personally taken out of the movie any of the time but I guess you could make this case is and I'm just reading this off of um, Wikipedia that there's a lot of homoeroticism in the movie and there's been people who have said that this is obviously a very uh, it's a gay relationship and one of the uh, interpretations of it is that Pattinson whenever he sees uh, like when he, when he sees the, the mermaid for the second time and she's on the uh, like on the rocks like out there and like after he's bringing the coal in and he they start and then he gets really scared and runs away and you know and then he's masturbating to the thing and he can't do it and so uh people think that his you know idea or ideal uh you know sexual relations actually with defoe is kind of this um you know older like almost father figure which then gets into like the uh, you know, psychoanalysis, you know, Eggers was obsessed with Carl Jung and said that him and Freud would have had a very interesting conversation about this movie <laughs> because of like, you know, the father figure. And I kind of, I hadn't really thought of the idea of Pattinson and Defoe as like a father and son. Do I kind of felt like more of like a coworker or a roommate kind of situation personally. So I guess you could like really kind of delve deep into the, uh, you know, the homoeroticism about, like, the mermaid was never really who Pattinson wanted. He wanted someone like Defoe. Uh, that's not something that, that's not what I'm necessarily drawn to. I hadn't really thought of that, you know, before. But I, you could make a case about it, for sure. I mean, I think you could probably make a case for many things for yeah. this film. <laughs> I feel like it's so open to interpretation that, you know, you can kind of apply your own lens to anything in the film you know I don't particularly see it as necessarily that theory but I could see where someone would see that or interpret it that way um you know I'm I'm hesitant to say that it is because I just think like you know for me, at least when I watch something on film, like anytime that you put two men in a kind of like intimate situation where they're forced to spend lots of time with each other and, you know, living in close quarters or whatever, like I don't think that that necessarily makes it all, all of a sudden, you know, a homosexual situation. I right. think mm-hmm. like anytime two men are living together kind of emotionally, intimately or physically close together, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think that that has to mean that it's a homosexual relationship. Um, but there's clearly some like weird psychosexual stuff happening here. Um, you know, and I, I, it's hard to kind of interpret or nail down exactly what that relationship is. Um, I do kind of get like the father son thing. Um, even though it's not like talked about, I mean, clearly Willem Dafoe's character is kind of like that fatherly figure, you know, offering guidance, trying to, you know, 
tell him how to do things. Um, and then there's clearly some anger and resentment on Robert Pattinson's part, you know, trying to buck the authority, like, you know, trying to prove that he is very different than Willem Dafoe's character as well. Right. Yeah. The, and there's there is an interesting like kind of path to go down with that idea. And again, I I kind of still think of it as this other version of Pattinson that he thinks of himself as um, the uh, the old life of who he was like when he before he came to the island and when he um, killed the person that he did. Um, and I think that that scene again when he's yelling at him like you're you're just a shit liar like he's kind of getting all of his self-resentment out like stuff that he obviously doesn't like about himself and he kind of hates himself for what he did and who he was so he's really trying to get rid of that and I think and I guess this is one of the big questions that I want to ask you I think that what he is looking for in the light is some kind of uh you know forgiveness and change and uh you know break away from that old life and when he doesn't get it because he was just so driven by that and wanting to kind of push everything bad under the rug that's what ends up killing him and you know it's the it is kind of the ultimate like it's like the Glen Gary leads and Glen Gary Glen Ross or the the suitcase in Pulp Fiction like it's something that you want so bad but you're never going to actually be able to obtain it and it ends up killing him do you have any like kind of concrete ideas of what he was looking for in the light or is it kind of obviously it's meant to be open to interpretations but do you have any um, specific ideas of what he was looking for. <sighs> Not necessarily. I mean, yeah, like you said, like some kind of absolution or, um, you know, this like the idea of like this pure, perfect thing that is kind of unattainable. Um, but also, you know, it's a little bit like uh, like Icarus, you know, flying too close to the sun. Like, yeah, there's so much mythology in there. I, I really, I don't, I don't know. It's almost like the truth of himself, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like you said, like coming to terms with who he is and what he's done. Um, but honestly, I'm, I'm okay. Not, yeah. <laughs> not really being able to nail that down. I don't mind that because to me, while that is kind of like the driving force of the characters, this this lantern, um, it's not the important part of the film for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I don't see it as like the big thing. I feel like, you know, even though I love the ending, I feel like you could take that scene out and just cut to him dead on the beach and you'd be like, oh, all right, well, I don't know what happened, but <laughs> it's OK. I. It, I love that scene. I love it. I love the mm-hmm. scene where he's looking into the lantern. It's oh so cool. Oh my god. It's fucking... We can talk about the ending like as its own thing. Let's do it. I I it's but one yeah, of the most it's... bonkers thing I've seen in a movie in the past few years. I'm just like each time I'm horrified. <laughs> and I didn't realize this time watching it I hadn't taken particular note of the sound design. Because I was so, I think in the theater I was so focused on the score, which we haven't talked about a lot about the score. The score is phenomenal, <laughs> and it's mostly just based in sounds, like these very bombastic, boisterous, like kind of sounds. Um, but it's that is where a lot of the tension and the um, 
the horror of the movie kind of comes from, I think, is the score. So at the end, when the score is just continually building and they completely distort the sounds that Pattinson's making, like at first he's like kind of laughing. It's like so over modulated that it's just clipping and you're losing almost all the sound. It's it's really wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's and, and then he just goes to screaming and it is like. I w- I had headphones on while I was watching it, and I was just like, it, it just like shrills. It like pierces your ears because of how distorted it is, and it and it needs to be. And I say that obviously as a compliment because it is just I can't. But I also can't look away, and that kind of adds to my theory. Like because when he gets to the light, he has this idea. There's this moment when he first puts his hand on it. There's this kind of release. And then it changes into this horrifying realization that it, it's not what he wanted it to be. Like he obviously doesn't obtain what he was, what he set out to obtain, whatever that is, or whatever he thought the light was, or just finding something special in the light. It wasn't what he thought it was. So when he's like screaming, you can tell it's just like, oh no, like the ultimate, you know, the ultimate fatality. You know, <laughs> like just and then he falls and just he goes down like hard like even just from when he drops from the light like you hear his like leg break and he just rolls all the way down the stairs it is like it's terrifying it's so good because and I love that this is not like a traditional horror movie it's much more psychological it's not and it's also not a th- I don't even know how to classify this movie but it, it there are moments that really terrify you because of just the way the imagery and the the technical aspects m- mesh together it's brilliant it's so good. It's a perfect ending. Well, I mean, I guess if we were to like glean some kind of moral or lesson from this, it's like the depths that someone will go to to get the thing that they want. You know, like how depraved will you get to get to that thing? Um, but I don't know. I the end. I, it's it's so visually stunning. You know, where the lantern stops. And it just mm-hmm. kind of like opens for him. It's like so mystical and and mysterious and just wonderful. I mean, visually amazing too. But then you know we've got the shot of him, you know, from the perspective of the lantern, and the blood on his face all looks black, and that's because of that special filter that they were using. But they actually dialed down the filter. They slowly dial down the filter so that all of a sudden the blood starts to become more light in color and it starts to wash his face out and become overexposed. And it's it happens so subtly. And I think the sound design is really distracting in that moment, too. And it's like there's a lot going on. So you're not necessarily paying attention to those subtle changes. But it's almost like the light is like washing away this like you know the blood that's on his face um mm-hmm. it's just yeah, and, and I, then and then you and you think like oh this is going to be it this is the end right and then he falls mm-hmm. down the stairs and it's like the whole you know yeah i mean even watching him fall down the stairs you think there's another scene and i mean technically there is but it's like just one shot it's the final you know image of the movie but you think like okay so is he like is he dead like what but like it seems like there's something else like if they just cut there I think that would feel a little weird. So having the next shot of him outside with the seagulls, like his ultimate enemy pecking him is, is perfect. I also was just, I just kind of had this thought. There's obviously like the, the mermaid is the, the obvious image of the siren in old um, famous tales. And, 
but the light is more the siren of the movie because you know it like you said it does kind of draw him in everything kind of stops and it opens it up and at first it's like this beautiful thing that he's always dreamed of and that's the thing that ends up actually killing him because it turns evil and that's what a siren does so i guess in that aspect they kind of flip that um story idea on its on its head which is obviously very fun and it's I read a rev- I read a review that someone said that they compared Pattinson's performance to um, very similar to Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, which is a very fascinating. First of all, a great compliment to Pattinson, I bet, because obviously that's one of the best performances ever. And um, but it, it it is true that he has so much in reserve. And then at that end, when he has all the blood on him, it does kind of resemble like when like Plainview is like covered in oil and just you know, pushing down everyone in his way to get what he wants. You know, it's it's fun to see this portrait of someone going mad. Uh, you know, we have, there's so many modern examples of that. And, you know, I, I think there's a cool comparison between those films. But, uh, but yeah, I think that, you know, Pattinson just does a really great job of just, like, filling the frame with, and he's not, he's not even really doing anything. He's just screaming and the way the light like is hitting the roof of his mouth and like the tops of his eyes, like you normally see it like hit like right on or even below, but it makes him look ghostly. Like he's dying in that moment. It's terrifying. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I mean, I, I yeah, I was just going to talk about the light and the lantern. <laughs> like it doesn't really fit in here, but it just, we're talking about the lantern and I'm like, so uh, apparently like that lantern, they actually had that lens built, the Fresnel lens that is the lighthouse lantern. Um, and it was like based on real lighthouse lanterns, but real lighthouse lanterns just have oil lamps in them. And they were like, well, this film stock we're using, it's just not going to cut it. Like it's not bright enough at all. So they put some kind of like crazy light bulb in this thing. And apparently where they were shooting on that little peninsula, you could see the light from their lighthouse like 16 miles away. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> like apparently it was so bright and like even like the lanterns on the tables like when they're eating dinner and stuff they had like super bright light bulbs in those and i read interviews with pattinson and defoe and they were talking about how like when they were filming those scenes they could not see each other because the light Mm -hmm. was so bright which you know it's just it's interesting these and all throughout the film there are other lanterns and they're always kind of in between the characters you know they show up in between them and it's this kind of like dividing light between them that is that that is so fascinating because yeah when especially in whenever they have dinner together like yeah that that is a bright fucking candle like that they just turns all of defoe just like bright white and that's cool like i think that adds to the the like atmosphere of the scenes and that like they can't see each other and they're just kind of talking almost to themselves which you know if even thinking back on it now you can kind of see it in those scenes that makes it oh that makes it that makes it so much more fun that's so cool i love that but imagine staring directly into that for like so long after so many takes yeah it's gotta be i mean because to our to what you know for what we see as the viewer those scenes are actually really quite dark you know you've got the illumination on like their faces and their hands on the table but other than that the scene is like black like there's Mm -hmm. nothing that you can see um you know there's so much silhouetting happening in this too and i 
it's interesting. They always cut from like these really, really dark scenes to to like super bright, like outdoor scenes like the next day, you know, and it's like very stark contrast. It's constantly going back and forth. It's almost like, you know, it's a workout for your eyeballs. Yes. <laughs> Though most of the movie does take place in at night, which is it kind of makes it the ultimate like nighttime movie. Like you said, please please watch this at night. Don't watch this at noon on a Saturday. Like wait till it's like 10 PM and put it on. Cause it'll be, it'll be way better that this is the only thing lighting your living room. Yeah, um, for sure. It made it really hard to take notes though. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, okay. So I personally don't have um, much other analysis stuff. If uh, I, uh, we can jump to the final question or if you have any other talking points, um, we can get those out. Oh my gosh. Um, totally up to you though. I mean, there were just some things that I picked up on, like some recurring elements, lanterns, mermaids, tentacles, spirals. There were a lot of spirals happening, um, you know, and I don't know if that's kind of significant to like the confusion or the downward spiral that this whole thing kind of takes, but there are spirals everywhere, which is really cool, especially in the lighthouse tower when you're like either going up or down and you're looking, you know, at the stairs and all of that happening, which I think is so cool. And there's a couple shots where they're actually, um, you know, after they start drinking the lamp oil or whatever they're drinking, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like this shot from like above and you see these spirals and they're kind of just this like mess at the bottom. Yes. Uh huh. I think that is, you know, that kind of is a more, um, kind of a, uh, an upfront analysis like it's very similar to like Mulholland Drive like it's called that because the, the street itself is just like very windy much like the story and this is like you know there's downward spirals into madness and the story itself obviously just kind of goes and goes and goes into this never-ending loop of confusion um, and you can go down many rabbit holes trying to figure out what's going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I I don't know. I feel like I could talk and talk and talk about this <laughs> film. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, there there isn't really anything about this film that I don't like. I, mm-hmm. you know, if I, I can't take one scene or one line and say like, oh, I feel like they could have removed that. I mean, I, really, I'm happy that everything is there. There are deleted scenes on the DVD and I'm like hesitant to watch them because I'm yeah. like, I just kind of don't want to see what they are. I like the yeah. film as it is. It's, you know, there's no answered questions really. And I love it that way. I'm so happy with it being like just this, this wild ride. Yeah. I totally agree. Two quick movie lines that we didn't talk about that I have to make sure we mention. <laughs> Why'd you them spill is the, your beans? <laughs> yeah, that one's a classic. Uh, one, of, one of them is uh, kind of one my kind of low-key favorite scene in the movie because it's so funny, but it's also very... Uh, like I, you feel weird laughing at it is when they're just yelling what at each other like over and over and over again. It is absolutely terrific. I was when I when I saw that in the theater, I was like, this is what I wanted from this movie. This is what I came here for is Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson just screaming what at each other for like a minute. And it just slowly gets more and more and more and more crazy is just fantastic. I was I, I, I again, I laugh, but I also am just like, oh, my God. God, like, I can't believe, how do you get, how do you, who thinks of this? Who's, who comes up with the idea of like, okay, they're just going to be looking at each other. One of them's just going to say what, and then what, and then what, and then what, and what, and what, and what, and it's just going to go and go. 
it's people it's a, it's people a with siblings i those are the yeah. kinds of things that make me th- it like that and the fart jokes and stuff like that i'm like you can definitely tell the two brothers wrote this like mm-hmm. i have an older brother and it's like i can tell you for sure like we've had similar conversations when yes. we were kids like where it just it starts off as uh, something like kind of just goofy and teasing and then descends into just like chaos you know oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> i think that that you know it's it's being forced to be with somebody that you don't necessarily want to hang out with. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. As I also have an older brother, so I've definitely been there before. And then him and my mom, it's always, it's always doing that. Um, and then the other one that I'm surprised we actually haven't mentioned is you're fond of me lobster. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just, yes. <laughs> I think that I, I always try a fun game that I like to play with myself is like, what are the modern great movie lines? Like if you look at the 21st century, what are some lines? that are going to be like go down in history as like a famous one i think the number one is like i'm the captain now from cabin phillips i think that was kind of an immediately famous like um a great line i kind of think you're fond of me lobster is going to be one that <laughs> comes back around that I needs to be on a t-shirt it's so fucking funny oh my well, god well it's like and it starts off as this kind of like you know He's like, you know, saying like, what, you don't like my cooking? What you, you but you certainly you like my lobster. Right. And mm. then it just turns into this like crazy rampage of speech. And he's like cursing him. Yeah. You know, and it's like it, it delves into madness. And then Robert Pattinson's character is like, OK, I like your lobster. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of where the husband and wife stuff kind of like bleeds in there. Like that's totally yeah. It's so like because Benson's like if I had a steak here, I'd fuck it. <laughs> so so desperate, but he's also just being deliberately mean to Defoe of just being uh like you know ah uh, you know your cooking sucks and and then yeah he gets the whole big speech and Pattinson's like all right, there's no kind of coming back from that. Uh, just. <laughs> Uh, you win i i totally get it um okay so i think uh i think it's time to wrap this up we have talked extensive length about everything i want um we always gotta end the question end with the question how does how why do we love this movie and how does it add to our love of film um i want to know um you know there's just so much going on in this movie that fits well. And it's obviously, like I said, not a movie that is supposed to be analyzed to the point of takeaway and, um, you know, expect a clean cut answer. I want to know, you know, is this one, this one was something that I think we both instantly loved. So what is it about this movie that adds to your love of film or even also like photography because of the way the cinematography, um, you know, is handled? What, how does it add to your love of the medium? I mean, well, certainly on, you know, from the cinematography standpoint, for sure. Like that's really one of the main draws for me. Um, it is such a visual treat. It's so rich in texture and contrast and, you know, I, I, I love film. I love shooting film and it, it just has this look to it. There's no other film that looks like this. Anything, even, even stuff shot on film in black and white, nothing looks like this film. It is so unique in style that, you know, for me, it's like I could just watch it over and over just for that without the sound, without, you know, really paying attention to anything going on, just watch it as, 
as kind of a visual study. Um, but then on top of that, you're treated to these kind of amazing performances and this wacky story that doesn't, it takes you on a journey, but you don't go anywhere. Like yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such a fun experience. Um, and I think if you can go into it, releasing your expectation of, res- uh, of any kind of resolution or, you know, learning anything from it. <laughs> I think that you'll actually find it really, really entertaining. Um, and it always boggles my mind. That, like, even though it's an hour and 50 minutes, it does not feel that long. Like it mm-hmm. feels so fast when you're watching it. Um, and I think it's because even, you know, from moment one, it kind of the crazy sets in and it just gets crazier and crazier and crazier <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, yeah, it's it's a very tight movie. The pacing is fantastic. And I think, yeah, going into it, if you just uh, just go in as like, I'm going to expect a wild ride, and you're definitely going to get that. Um, and I know like sometimes movie going is more focused around clear-cut answers and, and getting obvious takeaways. Um, and that's why people, I think, are turned off of people like Ari Aster or um, Robert Eggers or David Lynch is because they deal more so in ideas. And like I said, I said it before, I love movies that can do that and clearly be like, this is more so about exploration of ideas and portraying them through people in dialogue. There isn't a narrative to this movie at all. And a lot of movies can get docked for that because, you know, this film is a storytelling medium and there isn't really um, a clear story here. Um, It's based off of a legend and it's... Um, you know, rooted in Greek mythology, which is, you know, some of the greatest stories that we've passed down. And like I said, there's stuff about Poe and there's stuff about, um, you know, connections with Hitchcock. But it's also like a lot of the movies that we see that don't really have a straightforward narrative are more so hangout movies. Like more, most of those movies, like, um, like Days to Confused is something that doesn't really have a narrative. It's more just like, here's just 24 hours in these characters' lives. And they're just going to let the story go as they, you know, as they go about their day. Um, and this isn't really like that. This is more so about like, okay, let's see how these characters divulge into madness. And if, you know, having that is the key, it unlocks so much potential um, and so like endless amount of possibilities of like we can do whatever we want and we can really mess with each other and the audience and it's still going to make it an, an engaging experience and I, I love that because they really took something so psychological of just isolation and someone that you don't get along with and then you know the movie just kind of goes from there and it's really fun to figure that out. And like I said, I'm more confused by this movie watching it recently because I'm like, okay, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And it's not like confusing in the sense, like, you know, it almost has this kind of Coen Brothers like weirdness to it where you're like, I don't like, it's like the big Lebowski where you're just like, I have no idea what that movie is supposed to mean. And it can mean so many different things. And again, you know, coming back, I'm a broken record, but revisit movies, like go back and find something new. And I I love doing that, but I love that this movie is just, you know, talking about ideas. And it's fun, like as someone who is constantly trying to find what a message is and, uh, and break down a story to be like, this is what we're supposed to learn. This is what we're supposed to take away. You don't come out of this movie, a changed person. You come out of it, honestly, you know, (laughs) 
kind of questioning everything that came before. You're just like, I don't know. Like, what am I supposed to think? Because, uh, again, I think also we're so, and I'm, you know, obviously a, a, a direct example of this. Of We're so accustomed to being like, uh, this is what we're supposed to think. Because we're at the helm of a director and actors and storytellers, and they're supposed to be our leaders through this. Um, but there's my dog in the background. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, this one, the director invites you in but does not hold your hand you know it kind of acts as like a playground or like a park in that sense um and it's but it's also a scary movie like it honestly is a movie that gets it makes me nervous and gets me kind of on the edge and you feel with the characters so i just think that every technical aspect that they uh that they chose and setting these characters where they are and just kind of letting their imaginations one run wild, which is another thing I love. This is movies just filled with imagination. Uh, and it, you know, makes me excited that someone like, you know, like Eggers can, you know, this is his second movie, his second movie. That is bananas. Like, it's just, could you imagine like, and again, like, like I said, I, I said it, I said it to you before we started recording. I just finished production on a movie and, after that, I, when I finished that, I was like, yeah, I do want to be a director and seeing and then watching this movie. It's like the challenges that he must have gone through to make this movie. And all of them are really pushing themselves to their limits. I just want to know how he's he must be so convincing to get people to give him money to do this yes. stuff. I'm like, <laughs> who can get a film like this made like in today's like film world? I, I just don't. It, it boggles my mind, you know, and especially like. Again, I think the not the reason that this was kind of snubbed when it comes to awards, I think, is because it doesn't have that kind of tidy ending. There is no like retribution for any of the characters and, you know, there's no change of heart like, you know, they're bad and they get worse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is no real conclusion. And I think that that's why it didn't really do well awards wise. Um, And I think. I think that this film may have had a different reception had it come out post pandemic, you know, and and like you said, like it it does feel like, you know, uh, everything that we've gone through in this last (laughs) year, you know, I wonder if if it would have been received differently if it had Mm. come out like while everyone was kind of going through that isolation. Yeah, it would have been an interesting um, conversation to have. I think it would have. Yeah, if it, if it came out like right in, like in April, or if it was just like just released on home release and or on Netflix or something, and then that could have been like, oh, did you see the lighthouse? Like, what do you think about that? Like, it would have been a little bit more of an intoxicating, intoxicating experience. Not that it already isn't. Um, thank you so much, Alyssa, for Thanks this. Thanks for this having a, me. This was a treat of a conversation. <laughs> it was so much fun. I could probably talk for another hour if you wanted to, but <laughs> we won't do that to your listeners. <laughs> That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Always a pleasure having Alyssa Mitya on. She is just a delight. You can check out her previous episodes on our main feed right now. This podcast was produced by Sullivan Harris, who also did the fabulous artwork you see on this episode. If you want more Frankly, I Love Movies content, you can check us out on Facebook at Frankly, I Love Movies, on Twitter at Frankly Podcast, and we will be launching an Instagram soon at Frankly Podcast as well. Frankly, I Love Movies is part of the Orion Valley Productions podcast network where you can check out other shows such as Ravnik Avengers, which is a real play D&D podcast, and Tea Time with Titans, our Attack on Titan recap podcast. New episodes of that are out every single Wednesday. 
And finally, come back in two weeks when my old buddy Tyler Hubie and I talk about the psychology and emotional impact of Goodwill Hunting. It's a very special episode. It's one of my personal favorites. I'm really excited to revisit it. I haven't seen it in a number of years. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. <laughs>